Welcome to the Mama Needs a Moment podcast. We're your hosts, Chrissy and Cindy, co-founders of Her Health Collective. We are two moms obsessed with revolutionizing the way moms take care of themselves. We are so glad you're here. Let's dive in. This is part two of our conversation with our panel of Her experts discussing oppression, bias, and allyship. Last week, we dove into issues of advocacy, disparities within larger systems, issues with the diagnostic tools we use, the labels we put on others, exploring our own internal biases, and the role of funding in keeping oppressive systems alive and well. This week, we are diving into and exploring the topic of allyship, both for ourselves and our children. The expert panelists joining us in today's conversation include Maris Feely, a full-spectrum doula and co-owner of Carolina Birth and Wellness, Dr. Sharice Johnson, licensed clinical mental health counselor and founder of Jade Integrative Counseling and Wellness, Kirsten Spurrier, occupational therapist and owner-founder of the Perinatal Pelvis, Jessica Shields, licensed educational psychologist, parenting coach, and founder of Stronger Minds, Stronger Youth. Latasha Rouse, certified birth and postpartum doula, owner of Birth Sisters Doula Service, and patient and family engagement consultant. Last but not least, Erin Bowdy, a skilled business coach and behavioral strategist and accredited Enneagram professional and owner of Living the Enneagram. We hope you take away as much from this conversation as we did. In this first half of this conversation, we've walked through oppression and we've walked through bias. I'd like to turn us now towards allyship. According to Dr. Nico White, allyship is a process where you are building relationships upon trust, consistency, and accountability with those marginalized identities you seek to support and empower. There's also a wonderful definition from the Corporate Sisters. An ally is an individual involved in the promotion and advancement of an inclusive culture through positive and intentional action. If you are a true ally, you're not just someone who has the sentiment of, I believe that equality, justice, dignity, and respect should be provided to this group of people or identity, but you stand in solidarity with those marginalized people. That simple shift looks very different and provides a much greater impact. What does it look like in today's world for a person to stand in solidarity with marginalized people? What does allyship look like for you personally and within your industry as a whole? I'll tackle the personal piece. I have so many white friends that are allies. They they make sure, you know, they are protective. Even on social media, if someone says something, I don't have to. <laughs> They're going to get it. I have, uh, you know, people that I work with that are allies. But, you know, those, a lot of times they name themselves. And for me, the ally is someone that I chose, right? So there is that for the personal thinking about it. Like you may see yourself as an ally, but it may take time for the person that, or the group that you're working with to see you as an ally. That's a different process. And so you have to be chosen for that because it takes, it takes breaking, building trust. In the professional world, that also rings true, but in a different way. So I'm just looking to make sure that you're not going to block me. You know what I mean? Like, we don't have to go to dinner. It would be great. 
but we don't have to go to dinner. I just need to know that in that space, you allow me to operate fully. Anything else is gravy. I also think it's important to recognize that allyship can be performative. So there are times and situations where people may believe they're an ally because they have a good heart or they go, we intentionally give money towards organizations that help marginalize people groups, but yet it's not a lifestyle. It's not something that they live. So, you know, when we talk about that concept of believing that someone is genuinely an ally, it's someone that you know regardless of whether or not we even believe the same, they're going to support you. And the whole concept in my mind of solidarity means that you support, have worked through your unconscious bias to the point where you're a little bit uncomfortable, right? Because solidarity is typically going to call you to come out of your comfort zone and go, can I stand up when what needs to be said or what needs to happen is different? from what's happening, you know? So again, people can call themselves allies. And I often see whether it's in mental health, whether it's in corporations, even local entrepreneurs or mothers who will highlight groups of women that all look the same. And these are people that I might know. And I think that's really wonderful, but you still elevated voices that all look like you. You can see events and I just, I watch this way and you'll notice that, oh, here's an event that occurred and like, they're all white women. They're all wearing similar dresses and sneakers. Like there's these waves of different untold aspects of what's happening there. And while their heart is in an incredible place, I had this conversation with an organization. I said, you don't have any diversity on your planning team. So there's a lot of allyship and solidarity that isn't true in nature because the people who are actually spearheading and bringing forth the mission still all look like you. So you're not going to have diverse perspectives, you know, at the table. And I see that in mental health as well, where things are elevated by white cisgender males because they're predominantly who is what started the field of mental health. And it often shies away so that if there is something focused on people of color or LGBTIQ or queer identity, it's separate. Like, oh, we'll do it because it's queer month or Black History Month. So also noticing, are we only going into these conversations at certain times of year because then we feel more comfortable? Or how often is this weaved into everything that we do and say? Because I see it in the patients that I work with. And I will say where I'm seeing it most is in the young patients that I work with, in the high schoolers and the young adults who are very aware of what's happening and really struggling with. I, I'm looking at my parents in different ways, or I don't feel prepared to go be in a world because I was so shielded that I am fragile heading into this new space because I don't know how to have conversations and I feel uninformed and that impacts their ability to grow in their own identity as well. And I have to say, I agree with Dr. Johnson. There has to be this intentionality. And one thing that one of the school districts I'm affiliated with here in California is doing is they're training administrators and teachers in this concept of, first of all, 
recognizing when you are in a situation that might uh, provoke fragility, right? And recognizing when something is said that's not quite right, being comfortable with being uncomfortable, then interrupting that type of thought process that might be just based in bias and assumptions about a group of people, but then going back to repair and restore that relationship. They call it this RIR model. So you recognize what's happening. You interrupt that negative or that uh, falsehood of thought process. And then you work intentionally to restore or repair in some way that relationship or that conversation. And it may not all happen in one sitting, but it may take, you know, may happen over time. But saying, hey, if you're an ally, you're gonna be willing to step out of your comfort zone when you hear someone say something is wrong or that's biased or that's racist in nature or whatever it may be. You're gonna interrupt that and call it out. And you're going to call it out because you're intentional about changing uh, the way people or trying to uh, get people to understand a different way of thinking. I'll say one last thing. I very rarely see white-bodied individuals interrupting. It is still typically us interrupting and then we get a little message or a side DM or a phone call that says, I completely agree, but you weren't brave enough to interrupt in the moment. I completely agree, but you'll tell me something in secret on a post, but won't say the same thing that you said to me in secret right there at the bottom of the page to balance the narrative. So that's solidarity. Solidarity means your pat on the back is great, but I didn't need it in my DM. I need you to show up on the wall the same way you're showing up on other places, because when we are the interrupters and the disruptors, that adds to the stigma. That adds yeah. to Black women are too much. They're always demanding because we're the only people saying what everybody thinks, but no one else wants to say. So there is a level of privilege and white women as a whole sit back and allow us to carry that load mm -hmm. because it's comfortable. And I know that's hard to hear. Just give it thought. I mean, that's so important to hear as a white bodied, privileged woman. Uh, Latasha, what you said earlier about it's not my position to say that I'm an ally. I'm not the expert in allyship. And I recognize so much in my work and in myself how important somatically this work is. Because if I want to be somebody who stands in solidarity, not in recognition, but in disruption, right? Somebody who's willing to use my privileged body to be a, in front of it. I have to manage the discomfort somatically. And there is a lot of connected trauma that we have to dismantle and a lot of things that live within our nervous system that have to be addressed. And the only way we are from my perspective, I want to be an accomplice more than an ally. Like I want to be part of the breaking it down. I better know how to manage my body in order to do that work. And so I appreciate you saying that because um, I think more white women need to do that work so that they can be the disruptors in front, not behind.
And start small. I mean, you have to work your way into it. So start small. Start with every time you hear someone uh, talk over a person, uh, make sure you say, oh, I I think I heard such and such say that. Start small. And then your next step could be if you hear someone say things, and I, I just had this happen in a meeting. I had some, I heard someone say, well, you know, if the test scores are changing, we're more diverse than we were before. Hey, hold on. What did you just say? Did you, did you hear what you just said? The test scores went down because we're more diverse. I don't think you meant that. People don't know what they're thinking. And sometimes it comes out and you get an opportunity. So you can say, I don't think you meant that. I, I think this is what I heard. Is that what you meant? You can start small with things like that. And then you'll get to the point where you're able to recognize more what microaggressions are, because sometimes that's how it shows up. I find that until someone says something, people don't even recognize it was a microaggression because that's exactly what it is. And so start small. Um, As you see those examples, then you're able to respond to them more and don't shy away from it. You have so much power you don't even recognize. I just want to take a quick second to give a definition of microaggressions. I think that's important to note here. This is from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, their diversity kit. Microaggressions are the everyday slights, insults, put downs, invalidations, and offensive behaviors that people experience in daily interactions with generally well-intentioned individuals who may be unaware that they have engaged in demeaning ways going into all of that, right? White folks seem to be coming for white folks. Bringing gender into the conversation, the LGBTQ population, being an ally too means not only interrupting, but also, Jessica, you were saying that third R, right? Of how are we going to repair the situation? And that as allies or co-conspirators or you know whatever word we want to use, we don't get to set the terms of that. And I think that sometimes is really hard for people to not realize that, I mean, just like in any relationship, if someone commits a wrong, like, I don't get to tell you how I get to make it up to you, right? Like, we have to listen to the populations. And I think some of that too means redefining our definitions of conflict or of these identities, because I think a big thing I see in reproductive healthcare too right now and in general is also this definition of women and how we derive power from that word and whether or not that's inclusive of trans women who are women and you know non-binary folks and even just using language like birthing parents or pregnant people and feeding into that straight or cis women need to use that language too in some of these spaces or when we're having these conversations as well, because we need to make sure that we're modeling, right? That behavior and that inclusion and calling in folks who do share our identities, however uncomfortable doing that work that Erin mentioned, right? Of like sitting somatically in the body and getting uncomfortable with it, recognizing that however uncomfortable I could be as a white cis woman is never going to be the violence being committed against a trans woman or a black woman and that it doesn't compare that the need to interrupt and then to listen to these populations on how we can repair the work and the history that's happening and that has happened. To our Patreon supporters, thank you. We appreciate you so much. 
Our goal has always been for moms to know they're not alone in the tough and challenging phases of motherhood. We know Mama Needs a Moment provides this to our listeners. We are thrilled with the growth of the podcast over the past two years. Last year, Spotify shared that Mama Needs a Moment was in the top 30% most followed podcasts, was heard in nine countries, and had more content than 97% of other creators in the family category. We have recently launched a Patreon account for Mama Needs a Moment. This is a great way for you to provide additional support to Her Health Collective. We've set up three options for Patreon supporters, each with its very own perks, such as special events, discounts, and bonus content from each and every podcast guest that is available only to our Patreon supporters. Will you become a Patreon supporter? It would mean the world to us. Thank you. So much powerful insights in that part of our conversation about allyship, specifically this idea that we need to be intentional and that we have to be prepared to be uncomfortable. It really comes down to what we're doing every day. It's the little small things that we do. It's not performative. It's actually standing up and saying something in these little small moments. And I think those are such important lessons to take with us as we are moms. And that's a big piece of who our audience is. It's largely comprised of moms. And as is typical of most moms, our biggest concern tends to be on raising our children to be good humans. And I know that our Mama Needs a Moment listeners and more generally the Her Health Collective community will equate being a good human with allyship and inclusiveness. As I, I was thinking about this topic of raising our children to be inclusive and to be an ally, I was reminded of a time when I was in, I believe, third grade, and I was shown a video. It was the civil rights movement, and there were a group of Black people, and the fire hoses were being turned on them. And this was my first time being exposed to this. And I remember sitting there in shock. And that's a whole other conversation. Why was this the first time that I was exposed to this? But I was sitting there with a feeling of shock. I felt an overwhelming feeling of guilt. And I remember thinking that I hated those white people. Nobody helped me figure out what to do with those feelings. I didn't know what to do with that guilt that I felt. I didn't know what to do with that hate that I felt towards these people who are being horrible to another group of people. And I just sat with it and I felt very uncomfortable, but I had no direction. And I don't want that to happen to my daughter. I want her to grow up with this inclusive allyship just built into her bones. I want to do everything I can at least to make that happen. So what does it look like for a mom to raise her child to be inclusive, to be an ally? Are these direct lessons? Is it something that is infused, as we said before, in our daily habits of life? What tips and suggestions can you offer for moms to be able to put this into action for her family? Do life with people that do not look like you. That is foundational. When we're siloed, in and everything we see and experience looks just like us, that's what allows the narrative to come from media, from what you see in school, from the books you read, because there's nothing creating that story and narrative. When your child from infancy grows up in diverse spaces and does life with diverse spaces, 
not we go feed homeless people at Thanksgiving or a few times a year we do things for underprivileged. We go once a year and go to another country and take a picture of ourselves with a, a child of a different color. Not saying those things aren't great, but that's not going to help your child be a good human. It creates this, look, here's what I do, so I'm okay. When you do life with someone that isn't like you, you have a completely different perspective of what it means to walk in their shoes. You see where our blood is all the same color, but you also see where our skin creates different opportunities. And so then you're more likely to disrupt in those moments because you're not only speaking from a place of, I want to work on this, but you're thinking of all of the amazing and incredible people in your life that you know that you're thinking if that happened to so-and-so, I would be upset. So I'm not going to stand back and not do anything now. That's very hard to develop much later on in life. And for, if we think about the developmental growth of children, it is much easier to develop when they're younger. So parents have a tendency to shy away from tough conversations. The world does not. So someone said it earlier, if you don't have these conversations, the world and their peers will have them for you. From birth to seven, children assimilate the foundation of what they believe about life. From seven and beyond, you're just working to go, what did I not give them? So introducing this at 14 because you think they're ready is actually too late. Those early years when they're very young, you were teaching them empathy. You were teaching them how to be in different spaces with different people. You were teaching them, yes, her hair is different. Do not touch it. She did not walk up and touch your hair. Do not walk up and touch her hair. Yes, it's different, you know, and let's now go talk about that since you're curious. And then we can talk about what that's like and why you don't want to touch somebody's hair because you don't want to touch anybody without permission. So it is a combination of doing life, having conversations and being intentional about sharing these things to and with your children, because if you don't, that is a privilege. Um, I, I did a podcast several years ago with some other white body moms and we like went all in and we talked about the fact that I was like, I don't have the privilege of letting my child run freely. Like my son will be judged for being busy where your white son won't. If he can't go to school and sit still, it has consequences for him. So I have to be harder and tougher on him. If we as parents wait to extend those things to our kids until they're 12, 13, 14, the level of privilege is so rooted. It's not impossible, but it's a lot more challenging to uproot. So really ask yourself, what does the diversity in our friends look like? When we get together with our favorite people, how many moms do I know that I don't work with that aren't just at my child's dance class or sports? Do I invite them to our house? Do I know where they live? Do I know how many other children that they have? Do I know what they do? Do I even know their last name? We have to do life together. We have to. I just want to say also the literature in your home, make sure it's diverse. Make sure that the toys are diverse. It's okay to have the black bar. 
and the white Barbie and a Latina Barbie, just making sure that it's, it's normalized, normalizing the diversity and embracing it and not always calling it out. Oh, well, let's get the black doll. Oh, she's cute. You like this one? I like her dress. You know, not always having to call out, but normalizing it as if it's just a part of life, like everyone. So I would say, again, the, liter the literature in your home and also the, the toys or the representation in other aspects as well. I will say point out beauty where you see it. You don't know what it means to a child to hear you are beautiful, period. You don't know what it means to a mother to say, I, you know, I, I love your outfit. If it's not something you would wear, even though you love it. Just think about ways that you can compliment people that are different from you and let your kids see you doing it. You also can recognize that when you are looking at these books, and a lot of it can be histor historical content that may be challenging. Okay, that's good, but they also need to see some joy. They need to see some regular Black people in movies living their life. They need to see some books that talk about things other than civil rights. It's, it, you know, the full spectrum of a person is important. I had to do that with my own kids. I had to make sure that when we talk about in Black History Month, it's not all dead people. There's some living people <laughs> that are contributing to history. And then also I had to make sure I got my people around different types of people. And in this neighborhood that I'm in, we have so many cultures, so many different people. And so they've got friends in our neighborhood. That was a bonus, right? So I kind of got it easy on that point. But then you have to think about recognizing that they might see a person and not understand a culture. So go into culture with them and understand that people don't all eat the same things and wear the same things and, and, and point it out to them and say, oh, isn't that fascinating? And make sure you take the time to, to help them to understand culture as well. Not every Black person is the same. Not every Indian person is the same. People have different perspectives as well. We're not a monolith. I think that's important. I think one tip that's helpful for parents in this active work is recognizing that we are our kiddos' co-regulators and we are our kiddos' co-dysregulators. So if we are uncomfortable around topics of difference or oppression, we are our nervous system is going to teach our child's nervous system to be uncomfortable. I live in a disabled body and it's really easy for me to be comfortable in the world when my kids point to someone in a wheelchair and have a really natural conversation about ability and disability. It's that work in us to be their co-regulator around our differences and the things that we don't normalize as often as we should. I just wanted to leave one more resource for parents who really want to make a difference in child's education and in the education system. If you can get culturally responsive teaching in your schools, that will make a huge difference. And one book to start with is Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain. And it talks about the regulation and dysregulation and, and how we can embed culture. And that's written by Zaretta Hammond. So I just wanted to leave that resource for parents who are uh, looking to change or change in the school districts. This has been such a powerful conversation. And I'm speaking for myself and I know, I know Chrissy and she feels the same. We're excited to share this with our community. 
thank you so much for all of the insights, the thoughts, your wisdom that you've shared with our community on the topics of biases, inclusivity, allyship, and the systemic oppression that is within our country. This was an important second half of this conversation. If you haven't listened to part one of this roundtable yet, definitely go back and have a listen. It is a crucial discussion about oppression and bias. From today's discussion of allyship, here are my top three takeaways. One, so much of allyship can be performative. Performative allyship may be doing what we think will look and sound good, what might make a good social media post, perhaps a donation made or a volunteer project completed. The truth is, I can't just declare myself an ally. It is in fact something I have to ultimately be chosen for, something I have to earn, which is done through building trust. Building trust happens through intentionally showing up, intentionally elevating voices different from our own, and not just at certain times of the year, but consistently. Two, I loved the RIR model. I think it's important to utilize in education, the workplace, and in our own personal lives. It is a model that allows us to show solidarity and to show up as a disruptor walking in front of or alongside rather than behind those we want to ally with. Step one of the RIR model asks us to recognize, identify the feelings evoked by a person's appearance, words, or behavior. Step two, interrupt. Stop the usual cycle of reacting based on gut feelings and take a moment to challenge them. Step three, repair. Define action steps to continue addressing unconscious bias in a sustainable way that promotes long-term change. Three, the work to teach our children to be inclusive allies must start young. It cannot wait until they are teens and we feel it will be easier to broach these difficult topics. So much of their identity and viewpoints are formed before the age of seven. Consider who you are doing life with. Look at the diversity of the toys, the books, the stories your children are exposed to. And don't just let the stories of Black families and persons be historical in nature. That is important to cover too, but also let your children see the joy of other races, the way other races live, and all the ways those lives are the same and different from their own. They must also grasp that there are differences between cultures as well as within a culture. Each person is an individual with unique tastes, desires, dreams, hobbies, and dislikes. It is important that our children grasp the full spectrum of a person's life. We hope you enjoyed parts one and two of this conversation. Thank you for listening. High five, friend. We've enjoyed hanging out with you. Follow us to be the first to know when we drop a new episode. If you've enjoyed your time with us, let us know by leaving a review. We always love hearing from you. Until next time, stay true to you.